Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Would you be surprised if general practice were to die within the next year? It feels like it's been on the register for professions on palliative care for at least as long as this podcast has been dutifully visiting it every two weeks, more than two years now. Or maybe general practice is on the transplant list with the old crumbling partnership model about to be replaced with a fresh new salaried world. Today, we look at what the government and healthcare leaders have planned for general practice. Where does the power and influence currently lie? Is the salaried model really on the horizon? And do we, as GPs, even know what we want? I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and I'm also a sessional GP. And I'm joined by our usual uh, co-host, Navjoy. Hi, Navjoy. Hi, Tom. My name's Navjoy Larder. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And, uh, and I feel like it's been ages since we've recorded. So how, any news? What's what's new for you? I've been on holiday. I've been out of the country. So that's that's quite oh. momentous for the first time Where did in, you go? in a couple of years. I went to Corfu. Nice. Well, that sounds lovely. Um, but uh, uh, Jenny, hi, you're with us as well. Hi, Jenny. How are you? Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and GP in New Zealand and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And how are things in New Zealand? Yeah, good. Yeah? Um... <laughs> Yeah, you know, our Omicron wave is trending down and things are opening up. Our restrictions are easing up here and um, yeah, I can't complain. Good. So one of the the premises for today's episode, which I might say now, is that uh, I think a lot of people, definitely myself, has switched off a bit from what's going on in things like COVID. And so yeah, I didn't know that in New Zealand, are you still under restrictions? Is there, and is and is it out of the bag completely now? Is it, what's the update there? So we had quite a, quite a big Omicron outbreak over the past couple months. Um, so yes, it's out of the bag. Um, however, things have gotten <laughs> much better. Um, our health system didn't get completely overwhelmed, which is great. Um, uh, unfortunately, a higher level of deaths now than we've ever had before, but which are significantly lower than what the UK experienced. Interesting. Okay. So we're also joined again uh, on this episode by Gareth Iacobucci. Hi, Gareth. Hi, Tom. Um, and just for those that uh, didn't hear my previous appearance, I work <laughs> on the news team at the BMJ, um, um, yeah, in the, in the journalism team. So... Um, I'm, I'm quite on top of some of these issues. Hopefully I can re-engage my brain after being off work for Easter for a few days. Oh, right. but, um... Well, yeah, I mean, last time you were on the show, I think it was before Christmas, wasn't it? And um, I found that a really useful um, thing. That was a different time, wasn't it? It felt like um, there was a lot of stuff in the press hammering GPs about not seeing patients face-to-face and then we're, we're still, well, we're about to face the Omicron wave. And then... Um, do things feel a bit different for you following this as a, as the BMJ's sort of primary care journalist? I guess they do and they don't. I mean, I guess the news cycle more widely, looking beyond kind of health news, mm-hmm. you know, there are lots of other things kind of, you know, that are happening in the world now, obviously with the, the war in Ukraine. And the other thing is that the governments in this country, in, in the UK, seem sort of quite keen to move the conversation on from COVID, despite the fact that, we still have really high case rates and services are still kind of under lots of strain, but 
So I think that's kind of influenced the news cycle a bit, but it's still kind of there under the surface, I think. But, yeah. um, and it does crop up every now and again when certain newspapers need an easy headline. So I thought we'd start, Gareth, um, by, by just setting the scene a bit, um, both, I think, for UK listeners, but also those who maybe don't work in, in UK general practice or general practice in England, because um, we want to look today at you know, what does the future hold for general practice, uh, it, it, you know, focusing on, on the UK. But um, it might help to start with, you know, who are the big players in general practice, both the sort of organisations, I'm thinking of like NHS England, um, BMA, etc., uh, and who are the names within that, and and kind of where does the power lie? And maybe we'll get to that a bit later. But who 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 is who do we need to think about today? So uh, okay, let's start from the the GP side. So you have the BMA, which is obviously the the union representing doctors, and within that you have the GPs committee, the GPC, which negotiates with government over terms and conditions. Um, and then on the other side, you have this slightly curious sort of situation where you have NHS England which is kind of the the body that oversees contracts you know so that so that's doing the negotiating I guess on behalf of the government with Mm -hmm. with the GPs you've then got the Department of Health which has sort of overall responsibility we've had a new health secretary in the last few months and I guess in just a few short months Sajid Javid's actually achieved something quite uh impressive which is actually making people miss Matt Hancock I think um, slightly, um, maybe that's going too far oh. I think but um, yeah it's, in which way does he do that for those not, not following this quite as much yeah so he, he um, has sort of come in and wanted to I guess stamp his mark on the job there's been a few sort of eye-catching announcements that he's made specifically around kind of GPs as well and they've, they've not sort of been very well received I think partly because of the way they were delivered I guess via essentially via kind of leaking to newspapers rather than actually right. any kind of discussion with the profession or policy <clears throat> announcements it's very much kind of leaking by you know or policy by headline almost again I'm sure we talked about this last time as well but yeah a bit a big one recently was this sort of his views on the partnership model that he seems to think that um that it's days are numbered and that um within the next kind of 10 years that general practice in England should be sort of moving towards a more salaried model with potentially more GPs employed by hospitals, um, which would be you know a huge mm. shift and change. And um, so, yeah, he's kind of ruffling feathers in that respect. Um, okay, okay. So, which we'll, I think we'll come back to maybe in a bit. But um, okay, so we've got the um, NHS England Department of Health on, on one side, and then the the BMA. Uh, and I suppose the RCGP, do they do, they do much <laughs> in this area? You know, with, with Martin Marshall at the helm, you know, they have been quite vocal on issues around kind of workload and the, the sort of the fact that that really is the, one of the biggest issues that's affecting sort of recruitment and retention, which seems to be like overriding almost everything else at the moment. Workforce seems to be the one thing that everyone agrees that it, it, something needs to be done, but... Um, what is the is the question i guess gareth can i ask a quick question just about um 
outside of England, who who's, mm. who are the kind of NHS England equivalents in Scotland, Northern Ireland, so Wales? They have sort of slightly more, slightly well, I guess slightly simpler setups really, because it's sort of government and that's it. You know, the, the government or the health department in those nations kind of do the job of NHS England. I mean, it there was a slightly curious NHS England was created as part of the Andrew Lansley reforms, and the idea was that they wanted to separate sort of um, health from from politics in some ways to stop politicians interfering so much. But sort of ever since then, it's been very hard for politicians to kind of stick to that, I think. <laughs> and I, I, to be honest, you know, it, it it's public money, you know, and politicians should be accountable, really. So there's an argument sort of a, as to whether it was a good idea in the first place. But you've now got these kind of complicated setups in England really which don't really exist I don't think in the rest of the UK. Sorry I'm using this now as just a person like for me to sort out some of the questions <laughs> I've had on this but what, what's so the Department of Health is kind of a, an umbrella that oversees NHS England or what's yeah, the link I mean, the, between the, DOH? Yeah the Department of Health has overall responsibility you know um, so it, it, it sets the mandate to NHS England on what it what its priorities are what it has, to, what the NHS has to deliver, and then it's kind of up to NHS England to deliver that by kind of steering the rest of the the service, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. so, or issuing issuing guidance on how the service needs to deliver this. Um, but ultimately, the Department of Health is is responsible overall for for you know delivery. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and and I guess Sajid Javid perhaps feels that sort of he wants more control over that because of that almost it's sort of you know if if the treasury are going to give more money to his department he wants more say over what's done with that money that that might be his his thinking on it i guess uh jenny is this making any kind of sense <laughs> does this ring bells for you from your experience outside of the uk <laughs> will you sleep <laughs> uh i'm not asleep um i am i'm trying to understand um, it sounds very complicated, um, and I think you know it was interesting learning some of the history of NHS England, which I wasn't aware of, um, and just you know reflecting on the way that additional layers of bureaucracy, even if well intentioned, huh, struggle struggle to make things simpler. Um, and I've also just kind of been sitting here thinking about this issue of workforce in light of the recent Akaden report looking Akaden excuse me report looking at uh, the patient safety in maternity care um, in a couple trusts in England and one of the issues highlighted very strongly in that report is the lack of an adequate workforce to provide safe patient-centered maternity care and you know, not to totally derail the conversation, but I do think it's really interesting how over over and over again across different areas of health in the UK, we do see this issue with workforce and staffing. And, you know, I think that is just such a um, critical issue. And, and um, I know a lot of work is being done on that, but I am curious about kind of whether Gareth, you're hopeful at all that any of the upcoming changes or reforms or kind of even the, you know, whether the who's who are paying attention to really, really fixing that workforce problem. 
it's an extremely good question, Jenny, I think. Um, I mean, it, yeah, there's a difference, I think, between acknowledging something and actually putting in place the right things to fix it, I think. Um, and the other thing is that it's not, it's very difficult to, to do anything in the short term um, that will alleviate pressures. You know, training doctors takes a long time. Um, so anything that is put in place is probably quite unlikely to have a, an impact now, but it's, it's still very important to do it for future years. I mean, a few weeks ago, we had this very curious site, actually. So we had the BM or representatives from the BMA and Jeremy Hunt, who is the former health secretary for England, um, joining forces to launch a campaign which was calling for support to rebuild UK general practice and protect patients' safety, which, you know, that those are laudable aims. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's a very interesting tactic, sort of enlisting a former Conservative minister. Who, who and perhaps, went to war with uh, junior doctors. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very doctors, curious. Right? And yeah. I mean, Jeremy Hunt now is head of the Health Select Committee, which means that he's still very engaged in a lot of these issues. And, you know, he does seem to have sort of acknowledged that um, he should have done one workforce when he was in post. And I, I know that there were, there were those who probably quite rightly would say he should have done more when he was in post. But Nevertheless, he is quite an influential voice and maybe some of these messages coming from a conservative backbencher might actually sort of um, reach the people they need to. Um, I mean, the three key demands of this campaign, mm. they're all centred on workforce. So it was, um, the first one was delivering on this long promised commitment to recruit an additional 6,000 GPs. I think initially it was 5,000. They've failed to do that. So delivering on that was one of them. The second one was improving retention by tackling factors such as burnout that, that are actually causing GPs to leave the profession. So that's a big one. And the other one is producing some kind of concrete, you know, detailed plan to reduce workloads, which in turn, I guess they hope will lead to sort of improvements in patient safety, which was the other sort of strand of that campaign. I mean, those issues are really framing a lot of the kind of debates around at the moment, I think. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that we discussed last time as well is it is so hard to square that kind of long-term um, thinking that needs to happen with the quick political kind of point scoring that seems to happen as well. So I think there were headlines about contract changes recently with um, GPs being required to open at the weekends. Um, and... Yeah, of course, access is really important. But if you're dealing with a limited workforce and you want to maximise patient safety, then it's really important to prioritise the policies that, you know, will um, deliver most on that, you know, knowing that you have a limited workforce and that kind of thinking. Um, I mean, I don't think it's absent. I think it just isn't enough to outweigh the kind of need to be doing more in the kind of in the eyes of the general electorate, I suppose. Mm. And, um, and that, that's the bit that I find really frustrating um, because, yeah, I mean, it's easy to get cynical, but then you think, well, where, where is that going to come from if the politicians are more interested in kind of, you know, um, you know, looking after themselves, essentially? Yeah, I mean, like the, 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 sh the more short-termism of, um, I guess, Matt Hancock and all this high-tech stuff and... A lot of efforts gone into um, online access or online consultation. Is it that that type of thing? Which there's there's a what they called it a, 
opportunity cost to these things, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It takes your eye off the ball when it comes to the real, the longer term problems. That's exactly it. I mean, I think it's all about seeing policies as part of a whole. And yeah, exactly. What what are what are the benefits they'll bring? Who do they bring them to? And exactly mm. as you say, Tom, what are the opportunity costs? And is there by doing this, is there something else that we have to stop doing? Can I talk about primary care networks? Is that uh... Uh, before we get into that? Can someone just explain what a primary care network in the UK is? I guess they are a vehicle for practices working at scale, self-contained businesses joining together with other local practices to provide services at scale. Yeah, so is like that a, a kind of reasonable explanation? Yeah, um, and there's kind of a that there's a contractual mechanisms that kind of um, exist that allow them to provide additional services beyond kind of the things that you might get in a standalone practice. Is that also meaning additional uh, funding to provide those services? Yes. Yeah. The the main thing that the the carrot that came along with this was that, so most practices are between about 3000 and maybe 15,000 patients. Um, BCN had to be at least 30,000 patients. So that may be four or five practices. Um, but you, if you joined one, then you got lots of money to spend on new members of staff, as long as they weren't GPs. Oh, you, know, you okay. could hire people like um, physios, uh, paramedics, uh, pharmacists, uh, social prescribing uh, link workers. And uh, so that's where most of the money goes. But there, there was a separate bit, which is about um, working with other organisation this of social and healthcare integration which hasn't really happened yet in most places but that's the other side of it mm. I want to say something on that I, I've been working at a, a practice as a, as a locum um the practice that is not part of a primary care network and not part of a federation um do the very <laughs> seem to do the minimum when it comes to online uh, access and um but ha- you can get an appointment the same day telephone in person and it seems to me that that's working pretty well. You know, it's well staffed. There's enough doctors to see to, to meet the demand from the patients, and um, and uh, maybe it just fits with my bias for many years that I've never been quite convinced that this idea of primary care networks and and all this this um, broadening of the, the the primary care team is necessarily going to improve care or make it better, but it certainly does create a lot of um, uh, well take a lot of time away from from patient care. I, I think it does speak to this idea of, you know, something that's introduced with, um, you know, it creates all this additional sort of admin burden, um, but to what end? I, I'm sure they have been useful in some ways, but um, I think it, you know, time and again, we see that practices kind of, you know, lots of practices know what works for their population. And if left to kind of try and deliver that, they can. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. And and I guess we had this, you know, in, in the past with Quaff, where it was introduced with good intentions and then became this thing where sort of um, people felt that they had to do certain things to tick a box. The view now that speaking to a lot of people, it seems to be that it's kind of outlived its usefulness. Mm. With Quaff, yeah, I mean, I suppose for the last two years, we've, we've not had to actually um, meet any of the the targets um, because of COVID and um, 
well, I guess that is an interesting piece of work there, I suppose, to see if that's made a difference or whether, I don't know if it's probably possible to unpick all that, but, um, you know, what, what, what impact has that had on, on people's lives and health and illness and et cetera? Um, it's always been a big question, hasn't it, with Quaff? Um, so Gareth, should we should we just spend a couple of minutes just talking about the some of the individuals involved here? So we've gone through the the the, the organisations, I guess. But um, mm. so we've got a new person at the in the BMA. We've got um, well, let's go through, through the names. Who, who are the power the people in power at the moment, and, and kind of what are they doing with it? Okay, so um, yes, yeah, so as you mentioned, the BMA HGP committee um, recently. Um, elected a new chair, um, Farah Jamil, um, who took over from uh, Richard Vautry, who'd previously been in the role for a number of years. I guess the, the most sort of high profile person within NHS England is Nikki Kanani, who is a GP and has a sort of background in being involved with, I think, first of all, CCGs, and then she joined NHS England. Um, and in the background, obviously, you have CCGs, which are <coughs> sort of being phased out as we speak. We've got new integrated care systems, which are going to kind of they're, they're be regional commissioners of and providers of health services. And they're, they're still sort of forming as we speak, really. So each of those, there'll be about 40 or so of those. Each of those will have a kind of a leader in charge as well. But at this stage, we don't really know kind of exactly who they are going to be, I don't think, in every case. But um, yeah, I think we've probably covered the national ones yeah, though, haven't yeah. we? So I guess so. At the moment, as we kind of speak, we've got Farah Jamil for the BMA and and Nikki Kanani for NHS England in negotiation with their teams uh, over the the new GP contract. Is that and do we do we know what uh, do we have any kind of clues or inkling about what positions they're taking or what they're negotiating? Well, over? I mean, I suppose that that this year's deal that we've there's been quite a lot of tensions really. Um, which resulted in NHS England imposing changes after the BMA decided to walk away from talks, I, I guess really because it wasn't really happy with the terms of engagement. Um, so as a result, um, earlier this year, as in earlier 2022, we had a deal being imposed without the BMA's agreement, which is never ideal. Um, and those changes included this requirement for your GPs that are in primary care networks to open from nine to five on a Saturday and um, from 6.30 to eight weekday evenings um, from October. It hasn't been plain sailing at yeah. all if you've had this sort of imposed deal, which has obviously upset the BMA. But um, yeah, I think it speaks to this I sort of... Well, you know, there have been issues within the, the GP committee as well, I think, over what kind of stance it should take with the, mm. with the government and with NHS England and whether it should take this kind of harder stance or whether it should try and be more um, facilitative to try and sort of reach a yeah. negotiation. And, and I think that that's been sort of happening over the last kind of year or so as well, the d disagreements within the committee over how its leadership should negotiate, really. Yeah. Interesting. And, and after, I mean, do you get a sense from GP yourself or from GPs? You know, I, I'm I'm not sure that GPs as a body really know what, what they want or or whether they want to be 
being more, uh, you know, taking more of a stand or less. It, it's very unclear to me. It's such a, um, you know, there's such a variety of different, I guess, mm. priorities within um, uh, us as a group as GPs. I mean, I'm I'm a locum, so probably what I want is going to be slightly different to, um, I was going to say you, but you're not a partner anymore, Tom, but to a partner or to a salary GP, I think all of our needs are slightly different. Uh, you know, people's practice populations are slightly different as well. Uh, and I think that is one of the really big challenges, I think, for um, anybody that's any body, as in a, a body like the BMA GPC, that yeah. is um, representing GPs, is you've got to represent this kind of yeah. um, pluralism of views. So it's, it is very difficult. Um, um, I suppose that's a factor as to, to why, in the end, <laughs> you know, a contract is imposed, because um, if, you're, if you don't have a, a single voice or well, you might have a single voice but if you don't have a, an, an agreement as a as a as a group as to what you want then um it's, it's much harder to negotiate i suppose it makes makes it you're a bit weaker for negotiating i'm mm-hmm. sure people at the bma may disagree with that but jenny but but you know speaking to your earlier point navjoy about the kind of relative short-term fixes versus the long-term game here. You know, imposing a contract to ask burned-out GPs to work nights and weekends uh, does not seem to be going in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I read a survey um, result. Sorry, I I read a tweet, and I can't probably give you any more information (laughs) than the the sort of headline but there is like quite a substantial proportion of gps who are planning to leave in the next three years it was something like 40 percent, 40 or 50 percent um and so yes exactly i mean you you would imagine that would be a high priority of a contract is to make general practice you know appear at least to be a desirable Mm. place to work um it's interesting that that gps individually seem to be walking talking with their feet what's the expression that one um and yet aren't really leaving PCNs, you know, they're not, as a, as groups, so sticking with it. Like, I don't hear people leaving PCNs or leaving those structures, and yet GPs are just leaving in their droves. That's quite an interesting point, actually, Tom. Um, so I could maybe talk to that one first. So, because yeah. the, the BMA actually undertook a ballot um, last autumn to ask GPs whether they would consider undertaking four types of industrial action. Um, mm, that's right. And actually one of those was would you be prepared to withdraw from primary care networks um, at the next available opportunity or, or even outside the next available opportunity? And I think um, two, not quite two thirds, but over half said they would be prepared to withdraw. But um, that was an indicative ballot. And mm. I think that that hasn't really progressed beyond that at the moment. The, the, the GP's committee of the BMA has, has not done anything more with this yet. I think at the time the feeling was, you know, we were dealing as a country in a service with Omicron and that maybe yep. this wasn't the time. But um, so there obviously is some appetite there, you know, to have these conversations, I guess, about yep. what kind of action. But um, again, it speaks to this point, though, about what, you know, um, what direction the committee should take and how, how hardline it should be. I mean, obviously, any form of industrial action regardless of where it falls on the spectrum is still going to generate headlines of 
doctors are taking industrial action so it's you know it's mm. it has implications so um but clearly there is an appetite to discuss it at the very least and yeah it's so it is a controversial option i mean you don't have to spend too long on kind of gp like facebook groups or um you know on twitter to see that people have such varying views um on this um i think it does also um speak to this point about um i think burnout is really important here because i think when you're feeling burnt out your capacity to think beyond just survival and what you need to kind of get through the day is so limited and so i think it's really hard for just kind of you know everyday practicing gps to sort of take that step back and think okay maybe leaving my primary care network is a good option maybe you know to think of that big picture I think burnout really like does Mm -hmm. a number on you in in that way and so we are I think to some extent obviously the GPC should be you know hearing from um, members about about what what they want to do but I think you you become so reliant on the people um, doing the negotiations to just to, to sort of see this through and do you know do what they need to do for for the profession which is difficult particularly if they, they as a committee can't agree on on the way forward um, that's a very good point actually yeah okay well uh it's time for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back in a moment to, to think about what what we think is going to happen next and make some predictions for the future of general practice when you're a gp you're not just nine to five Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you, with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. So, Gareth, um, for the last bit, or maybe for all of us, but th- th- should we try and make some predictions? What do you think is likely to happen in the next year or so, or what, or what could happen, and and what headlines could we be seeing? Well, yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, I think we're probably going to see a few more headlines about the future of the partnership model, but I don't think that's going to be decided in the next year. What happens with that? But so is that I mean, drip feeding that to make just, the idea yeah, normalised? And then I just feel like it's it's yeah. a huge thing. And whether Sajid Javid is around long enough to see it through mm. is another question. But I think kind of by by putting this out there and making it known that this is something he and possibly sort of other 
people in government are in favour of. He's almost kind of forcing the profession to to, to sort of um, almost have a reckoning with itself mm-hmm. about what it wants here. And, you know, there might be a sizable portion that, that actually think maybe I would, you know, happily work under a different model, but there, there are sure are many others that want to hang on to the partnership model. But yeah. by, by sort of putting it out there in this way, I feel like it, that is going to be something that profession is going to be grappling with a lot. Mm. I think and and Gareth what the what what's the argument that Sajid Javid is presenting for that I mean particularly because uh, I think the two sort of big things that I guess everyone is trying to sort of square is patient safety and then like workforce mm. uh, recruitment and retention so what can you just speak to what what the argument is from the top about about the partnership model yeah so I think one one strand of it is definitely about um the workforce and that basically if you had for example gps being employed by a large organization that sort of um it might alleviate some of those problems i mean i think there's there's a debate to be had there as to whether that's true or not but um that's certainly one aspect i think another is kind of the that it might reduce bureaucracy and that sort of the the, the business side of running your practice if if some of that or all of that could be removed then GPs would have more time to to focus on seeing patients. That's another mm-hmm. thing that I think he's mentioned. And again, there, there might be some truth in that, but it would depend very much on what this new model looked like. And sort of, I mean, at this stage, they're not talking about sort of forcing anyone to do anything. Information that we're getting so far is that practices might be incentivized to work in different ways. So, that, which that, in I some ways is already yeah. happening with it is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess then it, it sort of comes back to this idea that it's forcing the profession to kind of almost confront this and decide what it wants. And um, But I guess the, the other thing is that if your practice is in a very difficult situation, say, for example, it's struggling to recruit or, or you know, you're having doctors retire early, then it might feel like it doesn't have much choice. Yeah. And so you might have a choice, but in reality, you might have not have much of a choice, if that makes sense. Yeah. It is interesting as well, because I think um, obviously the, the downside, at least as far as I can see it with, um, you know, uh, slowly kind of getting rid of the partnership model is this loss of autonomy and mm. of um, of GPs being able to, yeah, really run, run their practice in the way that they sort of feel suits their you know, local practice population. Um but it is interesting because a lot of these changes, as we we're just saying, are happening already. And I, I feel like the generation of GPs that are coming through are perhaps a bit more distant from that very traditional partnership model and perhaps are getting used to the idea that that is a, a sort of thing of the past, if you like. Yes, I think that's very true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it, it. Yeah, I mean, he's talked about it happening over the next decade. It would be yeah not not something that would happen with with a big bang it, it's sort of incrementally happening already perhaps yeah but, something um, that we're sort of drifting towards mm. yeah and Aerith, where does babylon fit in here so yeah i guess that's a very interesting question that we haven't really talked about is sort of the role for digital providers i mean i guess we know that pre-pandemic going to work for um Babylon, Livy, other providers that do sort of digital healthcare was quite an attractive option to some GPs who wanted a flexible career. Um, then we had the pandemic 
though, in which many practices sort of subsequently upped their digital game or adopted virtual consultations after being asked to do so, which in theory, I suppose, could have made a difference to the sort of um, the attractiveness of going to work for another provider. Um, all I could say really is that I think the UK government has been consistently inconsistent on this. Um, <laughs> I don't know the current numbers for sort of which, you know, GPs that are choosing to work for Livy and for Babylon. Um, obviously those companies have also signed partnerships with NHS um, hospitals in some cases or GP organizations. So they are becoming kind of embedded in, in the health landscape in different in different ways really yeah so you've so been advertising mm, a lot that, and, and i feel like yeah anecdotally some of the, the newer gps are maybe topping up their sessions with the slightly less stressful or possibly i don't know i haven't done it myself but <laughs> maybe you know there's less of the here's your four hours of patients oh and here's like an hour of uh, prescriptions and, and letters to, to wade through yeah. kind, of, kind of complexity of it of it and certainly from their job ads they do seem to get get to this issue of like addressing work-life balance you know that that seemed to be a strong selling point and I think with them um, from my perspective the thing that's always kind of you know I've, I've not been interested in them is because of the private element of it and you know if, you, if you're sort of interested in doing NHS work that's always been kind of downside but with them moving more and more into the NHS they, they seem to be yeah that more potential to kind of disrupt and, and recruit I think. So any last um, yeah. last predictions? Navjoint and, and Jenny, what do, what do you think is going to happen? Oh, I, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I, I think, yeah. I mean, I don't hear any, I, I think so many of us are looking for that kind of, I don't know, like silver bullet or the thing that's going to make general practice um not just a, a sort of, um, you know, make the working environment better, but also make you feel that you're really delivering for your patients. Because I think that's the the bit that is important to everyone is, you know, just this, it's so relentless at the moment. And I think that that is what makes it hard is that you feel like, am I being able to treat every consultation and every patient in the way that I want to? And, that, and that's not just all general practice, that's pressure across the healthcare system um, that is making that very challenging. And so I think that, yeah, I, I don't know where, where the answer lies really, because um, whether, you know, it's not just general practice that needs these solutions, it's across the whole, the whole system. Um, mm -hmm. So... Um, <laughs> so you're not going to make you, a <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the temptation is always to end on a kind of positive note, but I, I can't... <laughs> <laughs> um so my prediction is that this is gonna um you know i think we'll probably continue to drift in the same direction that we're going in now and i think you know i think realistically there will be more of these providers kind of swanning in that will do things in a different and and potentially fast more disruptive way swanning in okay uh, jenny I've been kind of going through this week's letters coming into the BMJ and increasing numbers of people kind of calling for a complete overhaul across the NHS. And you hear about some of these intractable problems and it is tempting to think, actually, we just need to start over and build something different from the ground up. And 
you know, build a new system, but obviously that's, that's a pie in the sky idea. It's not, not, not feasibly going to be done. So there's my non-prediction prediction for you. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to predict, yeah, yeah, I'm going to predict something. I think um, at some point when other things in the world die down, hopefully, then we will come back to more pressure on GPs from, from the mainstream press. Mm -hmm. And I think that will lead to some sort of government action to try and appease that, which will then lead to industrial action. Let's go with, with something like that. And then I maybe like some form of um, renegotiation where GPs say, well, we will do X, but we won't do Y. And then Okay. I, I, I said I like it. I like the fact that you're sticking your neck out. Yeah, I, don't I, I, I don't like the, the probably the direction that will involve <laughs> us going in. I, I think it is worth us... Um, I don't know. I, I feel it's worth saying for me anyway, that I do feel, general, you know, as, as much as I'm quite cynical and feel quite kind of pessimistic at times, I do feel like general practice is something that is really worth celebrating and trying to save if we can. I know, I know that sort of is quite cheesy, but um, that we talk about this a lot on this podcast, that that kind of model of, um, you know, family doctor, um, having that continuity, supporting patients, you know, throughout their life courses and, and throughout their illnesses. I think that is something really worth kind of trying to hold on to. And it is also something that, you know, the BMJ were also wanting to focus on more as well, wanting to understand the problems that GPs are facing, uh, understanding how GP general practice could be kind of reinvigorated and revitalized so i will say to listeners just watch this space for more from us on that yes yes that's true and we can all agree on that is it that everyone all gps agree on that and we all kind of that's why we go into it and that, that's right focusing yeah. on yeah on the, that is is probably the starting point isn't it it's good to remind ourselves of that i think amidst all this kind of the yeah well, thank you. You brought it around to a positive note. So let's <laughs> let's wind it up quickly before we or I bring us back down. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Audrey. Thanks, Gareth, for joining us again. Will you come back again in a few months' time and? Uh, we can uh, yes very happy to Tom. thank thanks you for so much gareth we love having thank you, you. yeah thanks guys uh, and see you next time uh jenny see you thanks so much and that's right thanks bye for now bye for now yeah so we'll be back next time i think we've got parosmia uh, post-covid parosmia Ooh. coming up next in a couple of post weeks COVID. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh and uh yeah we'll see you then um bye for now